0: I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So begins Tolstoy's well-known opening to Anna Karenina, or Anna Karenina, if you're a good old boy from Alabama like me. In fact, this line has developed into something of a principle applied across various disciplines of life and learning. The Anna Karenina principle, as it is now called, holds that it is possible to fail in many ways, but to succeed in only one way, by avoiding each of the routes of failure. An example was provided by the author Jared Diamond in his 1997 book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. He discussed in that book why so few animal species have been domesticated. So unless an animal is easy to feed, unless it grows rapidly, unless it breeds readily in captivity, unless it has a benign temperament, unless it does not run away when frightened, and unless it has a stable social hierarchy, Domestication is simply not going to happen. So think, for instance, of the differences between horses and zebras and why one is domesticated and one is not. The point of this principle is simply to say that unhappy families tend to fail in varied ways, but a successful family, a happy one, as Tolstoy says, will have succeeded in all the sufficient ways, and in this, they are alike. So, onto the heap of this theory, Jesus throws another qualifier. One must hate one's family in order to find true happiness. What? Really, Jesus? Well, the thesis of my sermon this morning is essentially this. Whether we are speaking of our families or any relationships in which we find ourselves, we must learn to hate them in the right way in order to love them precisely as God intends. That's right. We must learn to hate them in the right way. That is, as mutual subjects turned towards God. So we don't learn to hate them, or they don't learn to hate us in the wrong way. But before exploring that further, we might start off this morning with a simple question. How on earth are we to make sense of this gospel reading? On the one hand, we have Jesus saying to hate our family, and on the other hand, we have Jesus, this Prince of Peace, telling us that He comes to bring division, not peace, but to bring division by a sword. Does Jesus condone violence? This is certainly a relevant question, given recent police violence and protester violence. And what is the sword of which Jesus speaks anyways? I've even heard people use this passage as a proof text to justify violence. So what gives? To be sure, the words we hear from the lips of Jesus are some of the most troubling in all of Scripture and are words that are raised by skeptics and atheists alike as examples of the inconsistency of Scripture. So is Jesus justifying violence? Has he not read his own Sermon on the Mount? Is this Jesus and Matthew, the same Jesus who told us to love our enemies and who only earlier in the same gospel said that one who calls his brother, a family member, A fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And isn't Jesus violating the commandment about honoring one's father and mother in this teaching? Something tells me that Jesus' command here is not going to end up in our Sunday school curriculum for children. What did you learn today, Johnny? To hate my family. Well, as usual, the story in Matthew makes us squirm precisely in order to make us look beyond the surface. And the context of the gospel passage clarifies our conundrum. You see, good hyperbole does this, and Jesus is a master rhetorician. Make no mistake, for Jesus has already mentioned the love the Father has for sparrows, which is only a fraction of the love that He has for His children. And of course, later in this same book, Matthew, Jesus extols the fatherly love towards, get this, not a stranger, but towards a son and a prodigal, disobedient son at that. But here, he is making a different but complementary point. He is saying that his peace does not come through the sword or through violence of the empire or even from the love of family, remarkably, but through the cross on Calvary. First and foremost, which is the sword his disciples must likewise take up? We'll need to unpack this a bit. You see, doing so will force upon his disciples a question of where their true loyalty lies. Will Jesus be their supreme Lord or something or someone else? His disciples must maintain a thoroughgoing commitment, not... Merely or only to one's family alone, although family is important, of course, but to the new family created by the cross through Christ, the church. It is the way of this Father and the way of the cross that Jesus is calling people into. He is relativizing the natural family to create a new one, the family of God, Now, the natural family is not dissolved, but it is rightly ordered within the larger salvific community of our Heavenly Father. And to be sure, this was scandalous as much in that day as this day. Because on the Jewish understanding, salvation came down precisely through ethnic and familial lines in Judaism. And Jesus says, no, no, my vision is broader than that. My family is not rooted in DNA or family heritage, but it crosses all lines of race, all class, all social stations, police or protester, and all socioeconomic status, rich or poor. This will lead him to say in chapter 12, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister You see, of all the things we tend to idolize, family might be one of the easiest and most subtle forms of idolatry. I mean, we at least know that sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as they say, can more easily be seen as vacuous and ultimately as dead-end streets. But family? Family? It is, after all, our Christian duty to be family people. It is for the good of culture to love families. And Scripture itself calls the people of God to be supportive of family in many ways. Absolutely. Nevertheless, Jesus is always calling all people at all times to take up the cross. And even family can get in the way of this. Therefore, Jesus says again, Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So does Jesus call us straightforwardly to hate our family? No. But every good thing, including family, can become an ultimate thing. And if you don't have family, we could just as easily insert friends into the mix who often become family in the absence of one. But us parents and grandparents especially need to hear this. Because a surefire way to make sure that your family is not happy in life is to place them above God, thereby making them shoulder all of your hopes and your dreams and your needs and your aspirations, which they simply cannot shoulder like God can. How often, I mean, have we seen parents who are living vicariously through their children placing all of their own significance on how well their child performs or scores on a test or measures up against the children of their friends? If we want our children to be happy, if we want to love them well, we must learn to hate them in the way that Christ commands, which is another way of saying to love them as God intends, that is we must turn with them as mutual subjects towards our Maker, not place our kids on the throne and treat them as objects of our ultimate devotion that only God can fulfill. Perhaps you remember the college admissions scandal which broke a few years ago. I mean, what a terribly sad reality. The motivations of these parents are complex and multifaceted, but surely they are rooted in part in an elevation of our children to an idolatrous level. We must learn that our children are not what they have. They're not what they do. They're not what others say about them. Ultimately, they too will be judged on how well they take up their cross. Are we preparing them for that? I'm sure many of these children now hate their parents in the wrong way precisely because their parents didn't hate them in the right way the way that Christ puts forth now there is more to the passage than jesus's hate speech there is his supposed endorsement of violence and what does it mean to lose our life and thereby gain it anyways well i think jesus is here stirring up within the hearts of his hearers a crisis They are confronted with questions that force them to consider where their ultimate loyalties lie and to understand that God requires of them everything. T.S. Eliot once captured the ideal of religious life when he wrote, it is a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. This includes our family." and our possessions, our plans for the future, our commitments to other tribes, our ideologies that separate us from brothers and sisters, and so much more. Christians who give up their possessions, who love their enemies, who walk into the white-hot center of danger for the sake of others, who call out injustice, who love the oppressed, they always do so because their allegiance to Jesus Christ is ultimate. It's not merely a duty but it is motivated by love from having encountered the source of all life and love. You see, when you come to truly know the grandeur, the majesty, and the hope that we have as God's children, then you will be able to give and love as God gives and loves. And we will also learn how to receive our family back as gifts of grace, where we are encouraged to teach them how to spend their lives on others instead of viewing our family as biological widgets made from our own hands. In his book, The Second Mountain, which I highly recommend, David Brooks asks, why would Mother Teresa have spent those decades in the slums? Why would Thomas Merton have spent those decades in the monastery? Why would Dorothy Day have spent those decades living a life of poverty, giving bread to the poor? Why would Dietrich Bonhoeffer have returned to Germany to resist Hitler, with a good chance that he would get killed in the fight, as indeed he did? Don't these people know there are beach vacations to be taken and nice restaurants to be experienced? You see, the gospel has always had social and political implications from the very beginning the irony of the gospel is that it does not call us to violence. Jesus' sword, his sword is the cross. It is the way of living our lives sacrificially for others, even our enemies if need be. And if we do so, it will change everything. If Jesus was able to take up the cross and suffering for his enemies, even as they were killing him, then surely we can take it up for our brothers and sisters in Louisville who suffer from the sin of racism, or anyone who is on the receiving end of violence, be it Breonna Taylor or a police officer. But there are still other implications to what Jesus is saying. It might be that for many of us, in order to take up our cross, we need to put down our phone. In order to take up our cross, we need to put down the cocktail glass. And yes, back to the matter of family, In order to take up our cross, we may need to loosen our grip on our children. But if we do so, in the way that God envisions, we will gain them back again and more. They will not then be products of our making, but vessels of God's divine providence, whom we have nourished and loved and discipled to be sure but for whom we have also modeled an ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ and the requisite humility and repentance when we fall short, which is inevitable, at least for me. So my prayer is simply that we learn to hate our children in the right way, that is, as mutual subjects turned towards God So we don't learn to hate them or have them hate us in the wrong way. That is, treating them as the object of our desires and hopes that they can never possibly shoulder. If we do this, we just might find that by losing our loved ones, we actually gained them back again as the gift that God intended them to be all along. Indeed, and likewise, giving our own lives away for Jesus' sake. We just might find true life for the first time. Amen.